Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us today, or if you haven't been in a while, welcome. We are happy that you're here, but I hope you don't think negatively of us because our sermon today is on the topic of money. I don't think we are a church focused on money. In fact, we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews verse by verse for more than a year, and we're now in the last chapter in which the author closes with various exhortations. Just looking back over the last uh, few weeks, the author has written about showing hospitality, remembering prisoners, honoring marriage, and now having the proper view and usage of your money. So if you're in chapter 13, glance up to the end of chapter 12. These various commands in chapter 13 are built upon what he says in 12, 28, and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Jesus has made those who trust in him citizens of heaven a better kingdom and to live as a citizen of heaven by offering our lives as acceptable worship to God, we must obey these specific commands in chapter 13. So our verse today is 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we're going to examine the two commands in this verse, one negative and one positive. Then we'll move on to the antidote to the love of money, being satisfied with God's present presence, which is promised at the end of the verse. And then finally, I'll try to apply this verse to our lives by using some of Jesus' own teaching. But first, let's pause and pray one more time. Father, we pray, um, pausing now, asking for you to teach us. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Um, even as I, you know, we reviewed Second Peter chapter 2 this morning I, whew, about false teachers, I pray that that would not be me in any respect. I offer this to you as my own worship, but we pray, Father, for your spirit to apply it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start by saying the issue is not money. The amount is of no importance. It doesn't matter if you have a lot. It doesn't matter if you have a little. So this applies to all of us. The issue is not money, but the love of money. The love of money is taking something earthly, money and the stuff it can buy, and elevating it to a place of importance that only the everlasting God deserves in your life. So the issue is not money, but your view of money and your relationship to your money. Loving money, pursuing money as your chief goal, worshiping money, finding security in your money, all sin. Because you have replaced God. You have relegated Him to something less than what His character deserves. So this verse begins with two commands. And the first one is negative. Do not do that. And in this case, do not love money most. So on your outline, number one, 
part A, keep your life free from the love of money. With this command, the author of Hebrews is hearkening back to the last of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 17, your next two blanks. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So there's nothing wrong with noticing what other people have. As long as that noticing leads you to thank God for blessing them in that certain way. But with our sinful hearts, when we notice something, we usually quit thanking God for what He's given us, don't we? Because we would rather have what He has given them. Our hearts are like kids on Christmas. We're happy with our presence until we see what our friends got. Coveting is jealousy and then seeking that thing or person to match your desire then follows. So just like having money, a desire is not sinful, potentially. It is good to desire to generously provide for your kids. To take a nice family vacation, to live in an attractive or a clean house. But if that desire morphs itself into uh, needing it for your own happiness, that is sinful. It's coveting if your wish list determines how you treat those around you. It's coveting if your wish list uh, determines your happiness. Now, these are general statements, but I hope you see the principle. Coveting other people's things is a violation of not just the Tenth Commandment, but the first and the second. Coveting is idolatry, so that's a violation of the second commandment, because you're worshiping, seeking, orienting your life around something that is earthly because God is not enough for you. That's a violation of the first commandment. Now, coveting is a heart issue. I can be coveting, and you could be coveting. We could be coveting each other, and neither of us may ever know. And that's why this is so dangerous. We could be walking around worshiping idols and dethroning God in our hearts and in our head, and no one ever know it. And that's exactly what every company or business wants you to do. Dr. Moeller writes in his commentary, we live in a society and operate within an economy of covetousness. Every ad and every marketing strategy encourages us to have what we want and to want what we don't have. Because their bottom line depends on you coveting. But here, the Bible tells us to live differently. Fight those natural desires within you to want more and to want what other people have. Do not live the same way that the world lives, serving and feeding and bowing to the love of money. In fact, this first part of the verse is a call to action. It begins, keep 
your life free from. That is what you and I are to do daily. Keep ourselves from loving money more than we love God. And related to the first command is the second. Your next blank. Be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Now, I've labeled them 1A and B because they go together. You won't be content with what you have if you're serving money. But you will be free from the love of money if you are content with what you have. Now, this is a spiritual principle to live by, not a call to stop working, uh, not a call to settle, not a call to abandon ambition and drive. You should work, and you should work as hard as you can at your job for the glory of God, because that's good stewardship. You should seek to personally and professionally grow and advance as high as you can. That's good stewardship. You should work to make as much money as you can with the jobs that you have. That's good stewardship. Now, I have a seminary friend who'd like to be working in full-time ministry. That's his desire. But he's content with the situation that God has put him in. Four or five years, he's been working remotely for Verizon. He doesn't like his job, but he does well financially. So he's determined to stay there as long as he can. He's been saving for his retirement. He's been paying down debt, providing health insurance, paying medical bills, as he and his wife just had their first baby. Now, he's seeking to make as much money as he can to care for his family's future. He'd eventually like to enter ministry. But while he's been working hard, he's been faithfully serving his church, teaching, pastoring, recently becoming an unpaid elder. So he doesn't have exactly what he wants, but his happiness and identity is not determined by his job or what he owns. He is content with what God has given him because he loves and serves his God first, not money or anything else earthly. Now, if his ambition with his job and with his money was self-seeking, it would be wicked. But he's providing for his family's present and future needs, and he's a servant leader in his church. So every one of us should bring the very best with the work that we have been given, presenting our work and our paycheck as a sacrificial offering to God. Now, although contentment is a spiritual principle, it does have implications for our physical realm. I think a message on money is always tough, but I think it's tougher as we ride the wave of inflation and many of our margins are tighter. We might find ourselves now having to ask tough questions. Do I buy this or do I buy that? I need both, but which one can I pass on right now? Many people in our community and in our nation are asking themselves questions like this right now, potentially for the first time. Most working adults who provide for other people were not alive or making decisions in the gas shortages of the 70s and the inflation of the 80s. So we are part of a consumer society, yet we are called to be content with what we have, in plenty or in little. 
Well, let's look at the original audience. Their experience was far different than ours. Over in Hebrews 10.34, we learn that even some of the formerly Jewish Christians who received this letter of Hebrews had their property stolen, presumably because of their faith in Jesus. These believers were being persecuted uh, because they had converted from Judaism. Imagine this, their own nation, community, and family turning on these people because of their faith in Jesus. They lived in a culture and period of time when turning to Jesus was a great sacrifice. Maybe having less access to food, uh, safe homes, and now even maybe having what they own being taken. Our context is so different from theirs. We may read this command for contentment and we think it means don't long for more than you need. But many of these converts, when Hebrews was first read to them, probably understood this command for contentment. Be content with what you do not have. Now this is the beauty of the Bible. No matter the time nor the context, the, the Bible relates to you and your condition. For the original audience and for us, it's almost like a, a warning. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Some of the original audience lost their possessions, but rather than turning and devoting themselves to restoring their possessions and following their own cravings, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And for us, with tighter margins in our budget and having to make decisions between what we can and cannot buy right now, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. All believers in Jesus across all time and place are being called to live differently from the world. To not settle for less, but to live for something greater even if you physically have less. So second, the antidote to the love of money and the secret to contentment is found in the Lord's promise at the end of the verse. Here's your blanks. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now this quote is from Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is on the precipice of the land God has promised to his people, and he's about to lead them into the promised land. Imagine what could have been going through their head. It's not unoccupied territory. It's filled with many nations and armies and strongholds and mighty men. There's even giant soldiers in there. And we're just a small nation of nomads, and we're not on our territory, but we're on their territory. And the command comes and basically, shh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will go with them. He is their only confidence. Now this is an excellent promise in itself, but flip back to Hebrews 8. 6 and 7. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. 
Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Here's what I want you to notice. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for another. Now this is telling us that the Old Testament promises are great. But the new covenant enacted in Jesus is far superior to the old covenant. So the, co- the promises in the present with Jesus are far better than the promises before. The book of Hebrews is like an updated version of the uh, Old Testament. Filtered through everything we know about Jesus and through everything we know that Jesus did for us. Hebrews explains to us our new covenant life in Jesus. So we should read the promises of the Bible and rest our faith on them. If you stand on the sure and steady rock, you will not fall. And it says here, for he has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This promise from the Old Testament applies to us even now because the author of Hebrews quoted it and inserted it into his book to be read as believers in Christ. But its application in our lives is even better than the application originally applied to Joshua and that generation. What I mean is, Jesus takes this Old Testament promise and makes it better for those of us who believe in him. The book of Hebrews filters this promise through what we know about Jesus and makes it better. So Hebrews, the whole book, paints a grand and beautiful picture of Jesus, which amplifies and improves this promise that was originally given to Joshua. In order, here's the the application for us, in order not to treasure lesser things like money, you will have to focus your life on a greater treasure. So let's be reminded of this greater treasure, Jesus, through how the book of Hebrews describes him. So the main point, the title of the sermon, your next blank, devote yourselves to the greater treasure. Now on your outline, there are four sets of verses under this heading with a blank next to each one. So we're going to go through four different passages. Fill in the chapter and verse as we go. Um, we'll see in turn, we're seeking to be reminded of how the author has painted the picture of Jesus so we can behold him afresh, the greater treasure than money. So under each passage, there's some blank space on your outline. So feel free to write anything that sticks out to you about Jesus and his character as we go. But first up, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is your blank. These are the first four verses of the book, and it starts in an incredible way. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, um, spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Four verses into the whole book, consider what we already know about Jesus. God has been revealing himself through the ages, through a variety of prophets, but now the supreme revelation has come. So many previous prophets, but only one son. The son is God's final and fullest revelation of himself. Look at what it says in verse 3. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. If you want to know God fully, to know what God is like, get to know Jesus the Son, whom God has revealed in radiant glory, because Jesus is the complete radiant image of God's glory. Also, Jesus is the heir of all things. So in this Jewish context, that means that Jesus, as the Son, inherited the entire universe from God his Father. He has the authority over everything. So to reinforce the exact imprint language, essentially, if you do business with the Son, you're doing business with the Father. And more than that, Jesus is the creator, verse 2, and he sustains the universe by his words, verse 3. Then in verse 4, Jesus' work of sin purification is introduced. That'll be explained more later. But we know that that work, whatever it is, is finished because Jesus sat down, not at any old seat, but at the seat of power and authority next to the majesty on high. Jesus is far superior even than angels. So let's pause. Jesus said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, worthy of all your treasuring and who can fulfill all your deepest needs. But are you treasuring something less worthy and less satisfying? Do you treasure Jesus? Flip over to chapter 2, verse 14 through 18 is your next blank. Chapter 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he to be made like his brothers in every respect." so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those when they are being tempted. Now what strikes me here, and I highlight this verse next, is that the highly exalted one introduced to us in the first four verses has now come near to us. God is not some distant, impersonal force. No, God the Son, 
took on flesh and blood to become like us in every respect. Look at verse 16. To help the offspring of Abraham, people. How did he help us? He was made like us so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus had to be human to represent us before uh, God. There was no other way. Jesus is God and man together. And he took on flesh to suffer. He became the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a deep yet crucial word. Propitiation is the center of the gospel message. Jesus is the propitiation for sins, which means he is the fulfillment, the satisfaction of God's just punishment toward your sin and my sin. And Jesus endured that on the cross. God is holy and righteous, so his character demands justice against sinners. Those who have rebelled against and despised his character by their sin. But Jesus experienced the wrath so that people who trust in him wouldn't have to experience their own wrath, which they deserved. Verse 18 says, Jesus suffered, so now he can help all of us when we are tempted. Jesus came for people to destroy our two great enemies. And this passage says the two enemies are death. That is the eternal spiritual death that is coming to us for sin. And he destroyed the power of the devil so he cannot cause any spiritual damage to God's people. Jesus made the devil's highest power ineffective. Accusation. And Jesus destroyed these. Look at verse 14 through death. Jesus overcame the Genesis 3 curse of death by undergoing the curse in our place. And he didn't stay dead. So Jesus said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, worthy all of all of your treasuring and, and who can fulfill all your deepest needs, but are you treasuring something less worthy and less satisfying? Do you treasure Jesus? Hebrews 7, 22 through 28, so turn over to chapter 7, 22 through 28. It says, starting in 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Let me pause. The author is about to contrast the old covenant versus the new covenant in Jesus by focusing on the former priest and comparing them to the one priest, Jesus. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, here's a great verse to highlight and memorize. Jesus is the permanent priest because he's permanent. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I think it speaks for itself. All I have to say is Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, worthy of all your treasuring and who can fulfill all your deepest needs. But are you treasuring something less worthy and less satisfying? Do you treasure Jesus? And finally, turn to chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 22 through 28. Chapter 9, 22 through 28. We're going to start in the second half of the verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. So let's pause and say the author is contrasting the old and new covenant again by saying now the temple built by Israel in the Old Testament on earth is a copy of the temple in heaven. So the earthly priests entered the copy. But now let's continue. But Jesus into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It was not to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus's single sacrifice was sufficient and effective because he has the exact imprint of the nature of God, and he took on flesh and offered himself. This supreme sacrifice does not need repeating because one time was plenty. Dr. Muller writes, all previous sacrifices, earthly priests, days of atonement, were meant to make us anticipate and long for Jesus. He came and put away sin forever by offering himself just one time. But some new information is introduced here that we have to notice. Jesus is coming a second time. Not to sacrifice himself, that's already been done, but to complete the process that he began. To physically save, to rescue those who are waiting for him by taking them home. Jesus is the great shepherd who buys us out of death by his own blood, who protects us with his perpetual intercession that we read about, and who will physically now bring us home. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? For Jesus has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Jesus, worthy of all your treasuring and who can fulfill all your deepest needs. But are you treasuring something less worthy and less satisfying? Do you treasure Jesus? Hebrews 13.5 calls us to something better and something higher. Don't follow the world. Don't settle for seeking, serving, and savoring money. No matter how much you attain, it's a poor investment compared to seeking, serving, and savoring the greatest treasure. But as you devote yourself to Jesus, the Bible teaches us how to properly view money and what our relationship to money should be as we follow the greatest treasure. So flip over to the back of your outline and let's apply. What should your relationship to money be? Well, turn in your Bibles, or the entire text is on the back of your outline. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. In verse 1, Jesus begins a parable, and it stars two characters. A rich man, who's also referred to as the master, and then he's got a money manager. So we have the, uh, the master and the manager of the money. So the application of this parable is somewhat challenging, which is why I've printed the whole parable for you. So let's read it in full. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So the manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master is taking the management away from me. He's losing his job. I am not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Oh, I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. Note, take a note of that phrase. That will be important. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. Well, how about this? Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, I believe the parable ends there. In the middle of verse 8, and what follows is an explanation and application of the parable. So at the end there, at the begin, or at the beginning of verse 8, Jesus flipped the story. The master praised his manager for his shrewdness with his own money. So the manager was praised for manipulating his master's money to benefit his own future. And what's he doing? He's making friends for himself by cutting deals so that these friends can provide for him after he loses his job. So now with that in mind, verse 8b. Jesus explains to us, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So I tell you, 
Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So now, Jesus is saying to his disciples that they should emulate worldly people. That's the challenging part. So, you disciples of Jesus with money, with resources, with possessions. Be like this manager and like the people of the world in this one way. Manipulate your money, which is called unrighteous wealth in verse 9. Manipulate your money for great gain in your future. Now that's the general point of verse 9. But how do we do that? How do we manipulate our money now to provide for our future? Verse 9 explains, Make friends for yourselves with your money so that, purpose statement, when it fails, they would receive you into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is talking about two different places. Use your earthly unrighteous wealth not for your own future gain on earth. Be generous with your possessions now to benefit your heavenly future. In summary, be wise and shrewd with your money now by transferring your currency of earth to the currency of heaven. Now, when we landed in India, it was oh dark 30 local time or something. And we were looking to exchange our money outside of the airport. Everything was closed. A man came to us and offered <laughs> to take us across the way. You know, like past this truck, down a dark alley, uh, you know, over there with no lights. And we're going to exchange the money there. Um, I didn't want to follow him for obvious reasons. So I decided instead to be price gouged at the one location that was open right by the airport because it had lights. Now, we had to exchange our money to pay for anything. Our taxi, our, tra our, our travel, our food, our COVID tests. We had to exchange our money. So the same principle applies between earth and heaven. We must exchange the currency that we have money, possessions, resources, to heaven's currency. Now, I've taken and adapted this principle from an Alistair Begg sermon, also the story that follows. Um, but let's first read again verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The currency of heaven is people not money. Now, imagine this completely fictitious scenario. Okay, I have to say that it's fictitious up front. Imagine arriving at the threshold of heaven, and you're driving a Penske truck full of your most prized possessions. And it's full, okay? It's one of those big ones, okay? So Peter, you know, when you have a story about heaven, Peter, for some reason, is always at the gate. He's like the gatekeeper. And I don't, anyway, but Peter, you know, you roll up and Peter says, what's all of this? And you say, well, this is my stuff. You know, I'm, I'm moving in. Um, now, I just want to say, Peter, I have worked really hard at achieving this stuff. 
I've been wise with my money. I've spent some money, but I've not spent so, so much that I couldn't be saving for some other stuff, okay? Uh, and I'm not very well going to give up my stuff now because it took me my whole life to accumulate this. Well, Peter says, you know what? Uh, I hate to say it. There's a problem. And you say, well, what could the problem be? And Peter says, well, you can't bring that in. Uh, frankly, it's junk. It is of no value inside. Well, then you say, I can't believe you have the audacity to say that about my stuff, Peter. But um, is there any place to exchange it? You know, money exchange. Um, no, sir. You had to do that on earth before you got here. So you're, you're telling me that I can't bring it in and now I can't exchange it. Well, what do I do with it? And Peter points, there's a dumpster over there. You're not the first one this week to need the dumpster. But now, imagine a different scenario, and you arrive in heaven, and the gates are open. You're gladly welcomed in by various people coming up to you. An Asian girl runs to you and gives you a big hug. And you're so flattered, you try to stop her, you know, to, but then a a, a boy jogs up at the same time that she's hugging you. He gives you a fist bump and he starts dragging you over because he wants you to see this new thing in heaven that they put around the corner. So you got a girl hugging you, a boy dragging you in heaven, and then as you know, you're being dragged, an Afghan woman nods to you and says, Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're here. You try to interrupt you know, ask her, but then you notice a large family, and they're already open up, opening up for more hugs and handshakes. So then you, you just, you know, shake the kids off, and you stop and say, now I'm really sorry, but you have to have the wrong person. I don't know any of you. I've never met you before. And then the whole circle around you begins laughing, like they're laughing at you. And then the girl says, now you gave to that adoption organization and my parents received a grant to bring me home and then the little boy follows you gave of your time and your money you tutored my dad in the heights ministry when he was a student the afghan woman says your church cared for me when i was a refugee and i had no home the family says that missionary reached us with the gospel that you helped with your money and prayer support. You were generous with your earthly money and possessions, and you made for yourself eternal friendships in heaven. The application is this, your final blanks. Exchange the currency of earth, money, to the currency of heaven, people. Now, I just want to point out, this is not a sermon about how you can lower your tax bill by giving to charity. But this is a sermon for you to consider the question, what should my relationship to my money be? Now, I cannot answer that question for you, and I have to ask myself the same question. And I don't think that question should be answered here and now. I can present the question to you. I can maybe give you some helpful things to consider. But your relationship to your own money is about working out your salvation in fear and trembling. 
The wise way to decide matters like these is with our knees bent, our doors closed, and our spirits willing. So you can pray something like, Lord, give me divine wisdom so that I'm radically different from the world. Help me throw off any unhelpful entanglements. Teach me, Lord, the nature of being content with what you have given. May I use your money for your glory. For some of you, the application may be different for all of us, but for some of you, that may mean selling everything and going to be his witness. For some of you, that may mean making as much money as you can to generously support ministry work financially. For some of you, that may mean making your house as nice and as big as, as you can so it can be a hub of outreach, hospitality, and ministry in your neighborhood. Seek the Lord. He knows the answer, but we have to persistently pray. The verses directly following the parable in Luke 16 is an excellent place to start praying. The verse that closes the section is Luke 16:13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what should your relationship to your money be? At the very least, you should not serve it, but it should serve you as you seek to glorify God with it. So seek, serve, savor the greatest treasure, and then heaven will reveal the everlasting friends that you have made for yourself. The Lord will never leave you nor forsake you, so let us devote ourselves to the greater treasure. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. It is challenging, convicting, but also encouraging. Thank you for this promise, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would find us faithful. Heaven is going to reveal, I pray, great and awesome things. But I pray, Father, that you'd help us devote ourselves to you so that we could exchange our currency on earth for a heavenly currency. May we make much of you through relationships and the people in our lives. Help us not to serve and love money, but help us to serve and love you most. In Jesus' name, amen.